0: I want to really thank the worship team and all the folks that put this together. This was a great time of worship. Thank you so much. Good job, Thank you. And uh, as you're finding your Bible is turning to the gospel of Matthew, uh, I want to also just thank you uh, so much for all of your prayers for my family and especially my oldest daughter, Ashley. Uh, we have been kind of walking through a cancer situation with her. Uh, we've been up at Baylor Hospital this past week where she had a pretty significant surgery got out her thyroid, parathyroid, and lymph nodes. Um, we just got back late last night. Uh, she is in recovery, and we believe with further treatments that she shall be well. But I want to thank you so much for all of your prayers and support in this time. And as we're kind of coming to the heart of the Christmas season, I've got a question for you Who are you calling king? Now, before you just kind of jump to a real quick uh, answer to that question, I want you to meet someone who called himself the King of the Jews. He was the most feared man in all of Israel, and for some pretty obvious reasons. He, was, he called himself the King of the Jews, and he did so actually legally. His name, maybe you're more familiar with him, as Herod the Great. Now, I want you to have a little background on a guy who doesn't get a lot of attention on that first christmas but actually he is key and foundational history remembers him as herod the great Uh, he was born in 73 bc Um, he really uh, has a career very early on under his father antipater as a very successful man a warrior who actually is doing a very good job of quelling guerrilla attacks where in israel uh, there were jewish um, guys that would get together they almost functioned like terrorists They wreaked havoc on the Romans, and Herod was pretty good at quelling some of these bands of guerrillas that were running around. But when Herod's father, Antipater, was poisoned, Herod fleed to Egypt. Um, His father had been poisoned. Uh, The Parthians had moved in from the east. So if you think of the old Babylonian Empire currently where Iran is, the Parthians had never been conquered by the Romans. And they were successful in driving the Romans out of Israel and occupied Jerusalem. With this all taking place, even though Herod had been given the northern territory of Galilee as a governor, he flees for his life and goes to Egypt. And in 40 BC, he comes to um, uh, to Rome from Egypt, and he makes an appeal to the Roman Senate and the Emperor himself. He wants an army. And he wants to go and to kick out the Parthians once for all, this one group that they've never been able to handle, to get them out of Israel, to continue to expand the Roman Empire. And he is granted by the Roman Senate and the emperor this title, the king of the Jews. And so after 40 BC, when he receives this title, he has a, an army that is given to him. The next year he goes and he is successful in basically kicking out the Parthians out of Israel. And for the years following that, he starts to solidify his reign and his realm. Now, he is obviously not uh, a popular person in Israel. He's actually an Edomite. He comes from the Edoms. Edomites. He is, he's very familiar with Jewish customs, grows up with them. He understands a little bit about the Jewish people and what they think. In order to try to make himself a little bit better tasting to the people in Israel that hate him so much... He marries the granddaughter of the high priest, a w- woman by the name of Mary And she has a brother who actually is currently serving as the high priest. Now, Herod is a very complex individual. He's not, he doesn't really neatly fit into categories. Uh, he was obviously a very clever and capable warrior. He was an orator. He was a diplomat. Um, he could do things that were extremely benevolent. Uh, at one time, uh, during a, a great time of economic hardship in Israel, he actually gave back some of the taxes that he collected from the people. In 25 B.C., there was a famine in Israel. And it was Herod, under his orders, that actually had gold utensils and implements and statues from his own palace melted down, and that gold was then used to buy food for the people that were starving in his kingdom. So he had some, some possibilities, this king of the jews Uh, he is known as herod the great though because he was such an aggressive builder and even today if you take a tour of the holy lands you can see theaters amphitheaters uh all sorts of different fortresses that he made uh he was he was the one that got started what was considered one of the wonders of the ancient world and that was the rebuilding of the temple started in 19 bc it was finished 68 years after his death And he is the one who actually got it all started, and is magnificent. And for the Jewish people, he thought that it would win them over. And it was kind of like, yeah, a temple to your god, but it was really one of his great boasting uh, achievements. He also had um, established fortresses because obviously he had kicked the Parthians out, who are now in the east, kind of modern-day Iran, old Babylon. Uh, He did not want them to invade. And so, probably the most famous fortress that you might be familiar with is called Masada. But there were others. There was the Herodium, Machaerus, Sebaste. Um, He built these fortresses to protect Israel from being invaded by the Parthians. There's one other thing that you need to know about Herod, Herod the Great, the King of the Jews. He was cruel, and merciless. He was incredibly jealous. He was suspicious. And he wanted no one to in any way touch his position or his power. Shortly after he kicked out the Parthians, the ruling uh, kind of the supreme court of Israel is called the Sanhedrin. In order to exercise his control and power, he act, he actually had different ones of these Sanhedrin killed off. They also, the Romans, were had this practice that instead of allowing the high priest of Israel to basically kind of oversee and function as such this representative between man and god uh, and do so until this guy's death what the romans did is they started replacing the high priest at whim and it looked like it even functioned like annually they just like okay you got too much power we're gonna put another guy and they picked of course this infuriated the people of the jewish faith but he was cruel and merciless uh he had a way of Killing anyone he fought would be a threat to his throne. So, um, you are familiar with Mariame. Well, Mariame's brother happened to be the high priest on the occasion in which Herod was thinking, this guy's got too much power, and he had his own brother-in-law killed. And there was a, of all the different murders that he committed as we kind of research him from history, there was one in particular that just just radically changed him. And that was when he, marri- he, he murdered his wife, Mariame. Now, we know that Herod the Great had at least 10 mar- marriages. Most of them were political, trying to develop alliances with different people groups. But when he had Mariame killed, something took place in his life. It had a profound effect. He became seriously ill. He almost uh, died And he became extremely paranoid that lasted throughout his lifetime. So much so that even after he had his his favorite wife killed, he had his favorite wife's mother killed. And from his ten different wives, he had a variety of different children. As this paranoia grew in him, he actually started killing off his own direct relatives, including his two favorite sons, Alexander and Aristobulus. And five days before he dies, he has his oldest son killed, Antipater III, by his first wife, Doris. It is Emperor um, Augustus who reportedly said this, gave this quote, It was better to be Herod's sow than his son, for his sow had a better chance of surviving. The Jewish uh, historian Josephus, who wrote for the Romans, uh, made this co- comment about Herod the Great. Quote, he was a man who was cruel to all alike and one who easily gave in to anger and was contemptuous of justice. And this man, Herod the Great, the legal king of the Jews from the Roman standpoint, he played a key role that very first Christmas. So what happened in Herod's life when Jesus was born? Well, let's take a look at it. Matthew chapter two, beginning in verse one. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, the king, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star on the east and we've come to worship him. So remember from last week, as we've been making our way through the gospel of Matthew, just as had been promised There would be one from a son of Abraham, a son of David. He would be a legal heir to the throne of David. He comes and he is literally to be born of a virgin. And this child, this Messiah, has a purpose. And remember, we looked at it last week. It was actually announced by the angel, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will bear a son, and you, Joseph, shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You, Joseph, are not... His earthly father in fact this child is born of a virgin to show the world that this indeed is the eternal son of God and it fulfills a prophecy but you need to know that he has a role this messiah will literally save his people from the penalty the power and one day the very presence of their sins now we've tried to do this but try to imagine what it was like for the eternal son of God to enter into humanity to be born of a baby to be born as a baby held by this Mary who's a teenage girl who's got to be filled with fear she's far from home home is Nazareth, Nazareth. she's in Bethlehem because of the census she's with her husband who's probably in his late teens and she is holding the son of god it would be like the equivalent of, of you becoming an earthworm you're like whoa to have the eternal son of god now always residing in bodily form, growing, helpless. And here's the Heavenly Father watching all of this happen. And Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Bethlehem, the city of David. Rachel is actually buried there. And you could even, it's a tourist stop if you'd like to go and check it out. And this little town, Bethlehem, is where Jesus is born. And Herod the king hears this, but I don't want you to miss this verse 1. These magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Now, these magi are part of the priestly political caste of the Parthians. To think uh, that we always, obviously try to portray them as riding on camels and that just they're traveling in three, uh, they came with a whole contingent of armies. They had a cavalry. They had their own bodyguards. You're obviously, if you're an extremely important person, you're not just going to show up in enemy territory like, hey, we're just checking out the sites. It's not going to work, especially if you're Parthian, because why? They had been driven out. So when they show up in Jerusalem, quite a commotion and a stir. It's not just three riding on some or camels. There's like a whole army that's going to travel with them, and they show up in Jerusalem. Now, these magi, wise scientists in their own right, studying scriptures studying ancient writings they are highly revered and very respected among the parthians they're wealthy they're scholars and if you remember in 40 bc after the parthians had taken over israel it was in 37 bc that they had got kicked out now they're back and why would they be so interested in this king of the jews you see In verse two, they said, "Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and have come to worship him." Why would they have any knowledge whatsoever? Well, if you remember, in 586 BC, there had been a massive deportation of Jews to Babylon. This is the exact same area, modern-day Iran, where they are from. And if you remember, even prior to the massive uh, deportation of all those Jewish people. They had gone in earlier, 587 B.C., and collected people like Daniel, the smartest and the best the Jews had to offer. They brought him in and basically tried to brainwash them. But you remember Daniel, because God gave him such great wisdom, he actually was over all of the wise men in Babylon. Furthermore, he actually, under King Nebuchadnezzar, was given basically the rulership of the kingdom under the king himself, King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel himself also wrote. He was a prophet. And if you've ever looked at the book of Daniel, we've actually studied it here at Fellowship. In Daniel chapter 9, there is this amazing vision and exact timing as to when the Messiah would come to Jerusalem. These Parthian scribes and wise men, they would be very familiar as magi with Jewish writings. They would have a general idea. And notice there was the idea that there was this star that appeared. Now, other Jewish writings spoke of this promised Messiah. They knew that there would be a future king. In fact, it's interesting, even the Romans were aware of this. Suetonius, a, he's a Roman historian, writes this, quote, throughout the whole of the East, there had spread an old and persistent belief. Destiny had decreed that at the time, men coming forth from Judea would seize power and rule the world. Israel's prophets spoke of a son of David who would be an eternal king and who would reign and rule. So you need to understand that these wise men, these magi, would be very familiar with scriptures like these. And why why would they identify a star that they see? A star that appears with this coming Messiah, this king, this one in the line of David. Well, let me give you the prophecy. It's found in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. It's one of the prophecies given by Balaam. And it says this. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Many Jewish people thought that there would be a star that would appear when Messiah would come. It's very interesting. If we were to skip to the very end of the Bible, last page, Revelation, chapter 22, verse 16, the resurrected Jesus Christ, he makes this statement. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you, these things for the churches, I am the root and the descendant of David. You see that? The bright morning star. He identifies with this star. So they see this star, but what is the star? Now, there's some various possibilities that are out there. Let me give you some of the most intriguing ones. Uh, some believe that it was a supernova that occurred. Others, a comet. Uh, there is a pretty good case that there was a conjunction of planets that came together around the time of the birth of Jesus. But this star, um, we're going to find out later, actually seems to move and even has somewhat of a localized presence. Um, I'm of the persuasion it was, it was an expression of like the Shekinah glory. You remember how God led his people from Egypt to Israel, and he did so with this Shekinah glory, this, this brightness. And perhaps that's what it is. We don't know specifically what it is. Maybe God supernaturally had some sort of astral phenomenon. We're not exactly sure. But this star appears. And you see it? He says, it's written in verse 2, For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. We identify this star with the king of Jews. Um, this journey from kind of where we're there in Iran to Jerusalem, about 800 miles. Okay, so let's say you got a really fast camel. And you've got your army, you're you're going to do about 20 miles a day, okay? So they may have been on this journey for about 40 days. And they make it clear, we've come to worship him. The idea of to prostrate oneself, to kiss the feet or the hem of one who is honored. Are these Magi, are they Jewish people? No, they're Gentiles. Far from being Jewish. Jewish. And yet they seem to have a great degree of esteem and honor from this one who's been born. Do You see that born the king of the Jews. We want to worship him. So how do you think that's going to sit with Herod? How is this going to work for Herod? You remember, he's the one who successfully drove out all the Parthians, 37 B.C. They're back. And it's not just three of them. They've come with their cavalry, their army, and they're making this inquiry. Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? They go to the capital city, Jerusalem. Everyone in Jerusalem is going to be talking about this. You know that Herod's been on high alert. I'm sure his guards had already reported long before they even showed up. Whoa, they're back. They've got some sort of contingent of folks that are coming, and they seem to be on a mission they come to the capital city where you think logically you would know the answer to that question. Where's he who's been born the king of Jews? It's just kind of like, hey, you want to know what's going on in America? Why don't you start in Washington, D.C.? They probably know, right? Well, that's what they're thinking. And they've got to be shocked. No one seems to even know or even care about what they're talking about. And look at, look at this. Look at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. You see, Herod the the word here has the idea that he is deeply agitated. And why would all of Jerusalem be deeply agitated if Herod's having a bad day? Because when Herod's mad, when something doesn't work Herod's way, when he's functioning in his paranoia, you know what he does? He just starts killing people. And it's gonna get tragic. So Herod's all upset. The king hears this, he's troubled, he's deeply conflicted, and all of Jerusalem with him. I mean, Herod, is, Herod knows he's not the king of the Jews, even though the Roman Senate gave it to him. And the emperor would even call him as such. He's hated by the Jewish people. Furthermore, the last thing he wants is some, somebody to say, like, this baby, uh, he's the king of the Jews. What do you think the Jewish people are going to do? I, they're going to rally around this one. This will be the end of me. Absolutely not. Furthermore, uh, think of it this way. Not only does he not want the Jewish people to rally around some sort of religious figure, he does not want the Parthians to somehow identify a king that is not him in Israel. I mean, think of that. He he does not want the balance of power to shift to Parthia by the identification of some sort of religious messiah king on his watch. Of course, he is just coming unglued. When he heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. And so he's going to figure it out. He is going to get all the information. So he investigates this claim. Verse four, gathering together all the chief priests, because Rome kept pulling chief priests left and right. There were a bunch of them that hadn't died and he had them together. They're chief priests and scribes of the people. And he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. You see. The Parthian Magi are asking for, where's the king of the Jews? To show you the direct association between king of the Jews and Messiah, notice what, what, is, what is Herod asking for? He's asking, hey, where is this Messiah to be born? Where is he? So he makes this inquiry. And he's asking these chief priests and these scribes. These are like The, the scribes are like the lawyers. And they know the scriptures backwards and forwards. And he gets them all together. He says, I need to know we got all these magi and this army that's come in. They're saying they've come to worship the king of the Jews. They saw some star. So where is he to be born? Where, tell me exactly. Well, they're like, well, Herod, not a problem. We can answer your question. In fact, you're asking a question that, that has been well known to our people for some time. You see, there's been a prophet who actually told us exactly where he's born. And so he gathers them all together He wants to know, where is this Messiah to to be born? And they say, we got, we'll just tell you, verse 5. They said to him, well, six miles south of here, in Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what has been written by the prophet. And then they give him Micah 5.2. The prophet Micah has told us clearly. God, moving through the Holy Spirit, gave this prophecy, verse 6. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. You see, if you're familiar with the book of Micah, you know that yeah, that's Micah 52, but it's not all of it. They seem to omit the very last part of Micah 52 of this prophecy, which states that yeah not only is he to be a ruler and a shepherd for my people Israel, but it ends this way, his goings forth are from long ago. From the days of eternity. This Messiah, he's an eternal one. He's God himself. He doesn't have a beginning or an end. His days are from eternity. They seem to omit that. Probably because they know how unsettling that would be for a guy like Herod. So look at this. You want to see paranoia in action? Manipulating circumstances for your end? Look at verse 7. When Herod secretly, then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. Isn't that interesting? If the star appeared, but it seemed to have gone away because otherwise they'd have all have seen the star. These Magi make their road trip and they travel. Herod's like, I need to know. And notice he secretly calls them in. I mean, can't you see this meeting that is taking place? These Magi, these Parthian wise men, scientists, scholars. Meeting with Herod, he's asking, When did the star appear? And look at this, verse eight. It's kind of as if he's saying, Listen, all right, you're in my country, I'm the king. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you who's boss, and I'm gonna have you work for me. And verse eight, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, This is what I want you to do. You go and you search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, you report to me. You come back to me. I'm in charge. Get it? You report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Do me a favor, boys. Go find this king of the Jews, this Messiah. He's just down south there in Bethlehem. Go find him. And you find, once you find him, you come back to me so I too can worship him. I understand what you're, you want to do. You say you want to worship this one. I want you to know I'm the worshiping type too. You got to think about it. Okay. I'm sure these magi are looking at Herod. They hadn't been in town long enough, too long. And I'm sure they'd heard stories about this guy. All you have to do is look in the eyes of a liar to know like, yeah, right. That's exactly what you do. You want to go worship him. And they're like, okay, Herod. All right, and they leave. But look at this. Verse 9. After hearing the king, they went their way. And the star, which they had seen in the east, it went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And look at verse 10. When they saw the star, the very star that actually got this whole journey going, they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's like there are no Greek words to describe the joy that they had, like God is with us. This has never happened. This, this prophecy, this expectation, these miraculous events, they see the star. It's, it's localized. And it's like standing right over where the child is. And they're rejoicing exceedingly. And look at verse 11. After coming into the house. You remember that when, uh, when Mary and Joseph make their way to Bethlehem, they're doing so because of a the census. The, Bethlehem is so packed out. It's it's anticipated that Bethlehem is about like about a thousand people. So there's not a ton of houses. Remember, no one would give them any room. This is a pregnant gal. In fact, she ends up giving birth to Jesus in a stable. Right. Remember that. But maybe the census, you know, people have kind of checked in. They've kind of said hi to their relatives and people have thinned out. And maybe some one of their distant relatives had just enough mercy to let them in, let them into their house. Maybe they started in the shed, but they moved into a house. And so here they are. They find the child. Look at this. After coming to the house, they saw the child, the king of the Jews, the one they come to worship with Mary, his mother. And they fell to the ground and worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Can you imagine the scene? There's this little baby. There's this. Teenage mother, Mary. Here's Joseph, like, what is going on? He's seeing all these soldiers and cavalry, these magi, and they're just, their majestic appearance in their robes. They're carrying in these gifts, and they fall down. These Gentiles, they just bow down, and they're down on the ground, and they're presenting gifts to this child, and they're worshiping him. And they're all taking this in. Gold gold is what you gave kings it was uh, the symbol of nobility and royalty highly valued they present a gift of, of frankincense which is a much valued spice and for perfume very aromatic made through the made from like incisions that you make in bark and myrrh which was like it used as an incense or it could even be used to prepare bodies for burial all of these are extremely valuable gifts. You've got little trinkets they picked up at the airport. These are valuable gifts that they brought with them to bring to worship this king, this baby. Some people have thought that, you know, these gifts kind of had reflections of the character of the one they gave the gifts to, this Christ child. Gold represents his deity and purity and royalty. Frankincense, the fragrance of his life. And myrrh. The sacrifice of his death. While well, they present these gifts, they worship. And look at verse 12. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. So how did Herod personally respond to the coming of Jesus? Well, we see, first of all, it's defiance, right? He not only resisted, but he rejected. Okay? Okay? He was defiant. But second of all, he responded with deception. Do you really think he wanted to come and worship the the Christ child? Not exactly, right? He thought he could kind of trick these magi. After all, these wise guys aren't as smart as they think they are, and I can have them work for me. And he tried to deceive them. They saw right through him. In fact, God even warned them and told them in a dream, you go home another way. And so, look at this. How did Herod respond? Well, verse 13. Now, when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So God warns in a dream. He tells Joseph, Get up now, flee to Egypt. Egypt is about 90 miles from Bethlehem. There is a large contingent of Jews that's estimated at this time about a million Jews that are living in Egypt. It is outside of Herod's jurisdiction. It's not like he can run in there and just start killing people. And I want you to see what righteousness looks like. Remember, Joseph is described as a righteous man. You want to see what it looks like to walk with God? Verse 14, so Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. It wasn't like, you know... Okay, I had this dream. Well, when we'll get going and get the baby settled and get the car part, you know packed in the diaper bag and all that? No, you respond now. Faith is taking God at his word, obeying immediately, and that's exactly what he does, and it's a good thing he does we'll find that out and in verse fifteen, we see that he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. And so we see that Joseph responds immediately to what God tells him to do. He takes those gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They become the ability to finance a life in Egypt far from Nazareth. But I want you to see how Herod responds. We saw that he respond with defiance and deception. He also responds with destruction. Look at this if you can. Verse 16 Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. So it's estimated that in a village of about a thousand people, you're going to have anywhere from like 10 to 30 boys that would be age two and under. Just don't glance over that. If you got a two-year-old or under, son, grandson, could you imagine what that'd been like when all of a sudden these Roman soldiers just show up and they and they're not like, hey, when was he born? If you even look to another, you're dead. And they just kill that child right in front of them. You see, Herod responded with destruction. He was gonna deal with the issue once for all. I'll just kill all the children. And I'm going to leave lots of margin to and under. You kill them all, and I will be done with this king of the Jews worshipped by some magi. We're we're done with this. I'm putting it down, and that's exactly what he does, or so he thinks. But verse 17, then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. This prophecy given uh, in 586 BC, kind of when like. Babylon had overrun Jerusalem and all of Judea and was hauling the people away and killing all these people. Verse 18, a voice was heard, in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. She is seen as like the mother of Israel and she's buried right next to Bethlehem. And this prophecy given by Jeremiah finds its full fulfillment in the event that takes place here. When Herod, in a fit of rage, kills all these Jewish boys because he wants to put to death, once for all, this idea of Messiah. Well, verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up and take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. You see, Messiah... So closely identifies with his people that God had prophesied in Hosea 11:1 that this is out of Egypt. I will call my son. And so he does. He closely identifies he himself lives in Egypt and then he comes back to Israel. But I want you to see that despite of all the destruction that Herod tried to bring about when he heard about this Messiah, he died and he died with no hope. To give you a picture of this, Josephus, the historian, writes in his book, Antiquities, about Herod. Herod died of this. Ulcerated entrails, putrefied and maggot-filled organs, constant convulsions, foul breath, and neither physicians nor warm baths led to his recovery. And so, he dies. Herod, to show you again the paranoia, five days before his death, he has all the leading people Uh, uh, in Jerusalem, gathered up and imprisoned with this order. When I die, you kill all of them. Why would he do that? Because Herod knew that no one would weep when he died. So he said, well, I got a way to make you weep. I'll kill people that you love when I die. There will at least be some crying. It may not be for me, but it'll sure sound like it to me. And that's what happens. He dies, however... Uh, His sister Salome actually uh, countermanded this this request that Herod made, and these people were spared. He dies as an old man, in his 70s. You'll know some of his offspring. The the one of the child, Herod Antipas. Uh, He later, or you might know him as Herod the Tetrarch. He's you see him in the rest of the New Testament. He's the guy who like puts John the Baptist to uh, to death. He's the one who sends Jesus back to Pilate. That's Herod um, that we see here, Herod the Tetrarch, or Herod Antipas. But he dies. But this is what I want you to see, and this is why God has this recorded. You cannot thwart God's plan. His sovereignty is so great that despite the wickedness of humanity and any attempt to thwart the plan of God, it cannot be done, for God has sent a savior, a true king to the world. Herod thought he'd eliminate it once for all. But remember, she's going to bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, because he's going to save his people from their sins. And that's really what Christmas is all about. It is the celebration of the coming of Christ and the infinite power of God to enter into humanity and to bring about the salvation of his people through the fulfillment of a promise that I am going to give you an eternal king. And I just have one question for you this Christmas. Who? Are you going to call king? You see, Christmas is really a response. It's calling for a response. And it's really interesting that no sooner had Jesus been born than we see people kind of grouping themselves in the three different groups. We've got um, this first group. It's kind of like the group that we would put Herod in. And I just want to ask, how are you personally responding to the coming of Christ? Are you like in this first group like Herod's group? Like Herod, will you be caustic? Are you going to respond in defiance? I mean, Herod's a guy with like, he's like self-absorption on steroids. It is all about him. And he's, he's paranoid and he's, he's so fixated upon himself. And you see that. You actually see governments like in the world, like North Korea being a leading example. They have an utter hatred for Christ. Even if you, they think you're thinking about Jesus, they imprison you and all of your family. Uh, But you have a lot of people that just have a a hatred to Christ. There are all sorts of self-proclaimed atheists. Uh, It's interesting, in the United States, uh, the American atheists have kind of like, you know what, we're going to use Christmas to kind of capitalize on what we think is right. And so they put these billboards up. They're on buses. They're on major interstates. You see them in cities. Like, for instance, they say millions of Americans are good without God. Or the American Atheists have like this one that says, you know it's a myth, this season, celebrate reason. Or the the latest one, this year's uh, version they have is, make Christmas great again, skip church. Because they have an utter hostility to the idea that Jesus is God. And, you know, there may not be, folks are not necessarily threatened by a little baby, but once you call this baby God and that you worship him, and that you say that he is the eternal king and that he's God, well, you've crossed a line, and not everybody's willing to cross that and and go with you. And I want to ask you, do you really want a king? If you're honest, maybe you really don't. You know, there's a lot of good folks, what they really are after is a mascot. They want a good luck charm, a warm blanket. You know, there are folks that say, you know, I'll even take a savior You know, I've got some sin issues, pretty apparent, especially to my family. I need a Savior. I'll I'll believe in Jesus as Savior, but I'm asking you, do you want a king? Who is going to be king in your life? You see, uh, maybe there's more folks in the Herod camp than we'd like to think. I'd like to ask you, who establishes right and wrong in your life? You just kind of date who you're going to date, marry who you're going to marry, raise your kids the way you're going to raise them, go to... Go to church only when you feel like it. Who's calling the shots? Who's king in your life? If you want to be a self-made man and the master of your own destiny, I want you to look closely at Herod. He would not have a king. Let me ask you this. Who's going to be king in your life? Would you be like Herod? Or maybe, maybe there's a large group of people that are like the priests and the scribes, that they are completely complacent. They respond with disregard. This this one bothers me tremendously. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees, they knew their Bibles well. They could tell you the Christmas story. They knew all the prophecies. In fact, they gave it to Herod, right? But they did not respond. They were absolutely complacent. They studied the Scriptures. They knew it, but they didn't believe them. It's classic liberalism. You got your Bible, but it has no bearing on your life, right? Right? These guys, I mean, they they could have gone six miles. You think like, you know, all these magi, the soldiers, they all show up. Herod's going livid and they are telling him, yeah, it's in Bethlehem. It's only six miles down. Why didn't they just walk down there? It's an hour and a half walk, even if it's windy. I mean, take a personal day if you're super busy and you're like, you know, I think I'll go check this out. My whole life is wrapped on the scriptures. I think I'll check it out. After all, we're waiting for Messiah, right? But there is no record of any scribe or Pharisee any Sadducee, anyone from the Sanhedrin, any Jewish leadership that ever checks this out or makes an appearance. You know, it is is possible to know your Bible and to ignore the king and to be complacent. And there's probably a lot more people in that category than you'd like to imagine. Completely indifferent. It doesn't make the slightest difference to them at all. Or let me ask you, how will you respond to the coming of the king of Christ? Will you respond like the magi that third group will you be compelled and even respond with devotion and worship will you will you respond like Magi? if you want to know what worship looks like just look at the guys who are some of the first worshipers they're bowing down their lives are yield they give gifts their resources their time uh, finances gifts of value not trinket stuff they present to the king they worship him you see if jesus is really your king do you ever tell him Do you ever seek his wisdom? Do you ever thank him? And so this Christmas, I just have one question for you. Who are you calling King? Let's pray. Lord, we come before you. We want to thank you for Matthew chapter 2. And you have had these things written so that we with great clarity might know the power of your sovereignty. How you cannot be thwarted. That you who have promised the Messiah have delivered. And despite humanity's best efforts to kill him at his birth, you had him spared so that he would die in our place and pay the penalty of our sins on a cross and rise again. And so, Lord, we worship you. And for the people who have come here today who've never trusted in Christ, would they with me just pray and say, Lord, I turn from self and sin. And this morning, I believe I put my faith in Christ as Savior And my King. And Lord, for all of us, may we rejoice deeply in knowing Christ, walking in his ways, worshiping him with our lives, and knowing that we rest in the goodness of a sovereign King. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.